0: Hi, this is Aaron Weinacht, and I'm here on the New Books Network, and we're talking today to uh, Jeff Bilbrough, who's uh, written a new book called "Reading the Times" uh, about how we uh, we consume the news. So, thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to me about it, Jeff. Sure
1: thing. I'm looking forward to our conversation, Aaron.
0: Wonder if we could start off just by if you could address a bit how you came to write this particular book. Uh, how you came to this particular subject matter, what you thought was important about it and so on.
1: Yeah, I guess it's been kind of a process. I have been researching um, 19th century American media ecology for a while, thinking about how various literary authors responded to the industrialization of print, telegraph, railroad, uh, early photography technologies, and really intrigued by some of the parallels between that disruption and the digital disruption that we are living through right now. Um, so, I, and I, I'm still working on this scholarly project and maybe that book will come out in a couple of years, but uh, while I'm working on this, I'm also seeing my students really struggle with uh, having healthy relationships to their uh, news, social media feeds, etc. And um, I thought, you know, maybe there's a potential here for me to write a more quote unquote popular or or accessible book and not just look at, take a kind of scholarly approach and uh, not just look at doing a more descriptive account, but also try to mount a normative argument and say, what is some wisdom we can learn from prior generations, including but not limited to uh, 19th century American authors that would help, kind of ground and orient our um, thinking about how to live well in a digital media age, and you know, part of that is is I think sometimes our conversations about the news and uh, yeah, digital technologies treat all of these things like they're totally unprecedented, which kind of bothers me. Um, and, and so, part of what I'm trying to do is show how previous you know, kind of longstanding human wisdom about these underlying challenges remains applicable to the to the current uh, questions that we face about what the news is, what it's for, uh, how to attend to it well, and what its effects on us are.
0: You mean like we could actually learn some stuff from history? <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it, it, which a historian
1: appreciates, I guess. But you know, so often I feel like uh I' just really hit during the covid pandemic too right all these things are unprecedented and
0: it's radically new and it and it just kind of drives me nuts yeah that that word unprecedented is uh, should be uh, I, I'm not saying it's it's never applicable but should be treated with extreme skepticism exactly. most of the time i think um, so uh there's there's lots and lots of commentary these days of course on social media toxicity and all that kind of thing. So um, could you kind of uh, sketch out further? What's your uh, what's your particular angle here? Like, what's the what's the news actually for so that we can gauge whether we're consuming it in a healthy way or not? Yeah. So that's what
1: I try to do. Think about what's the purpose of the news. And I posit, you know, draw on the Christian tradition, but not not exclusive that tradition that uh, maybe the news is not a final good. Maybe uh, it's not an end in itself, but it's an instrumental good. And it's instrumental to um, giving us the information we need to love and care for our neighbors. And if we think about it in that framework, um, that might reshape our relationship to it. So, you know, I'm I'm drawing on folks like Thoreau, I'm kind of critical of um, the media industrial complex that transforms real stuff that's happening into uh, outrageous entertainment. You know, drawing on folks like uh, Neil Postman or Daniel Burstein, who've talked about pseudo events and how the news creates these events that are kind of puppet show to keep us always entertained and outraged at one thing or another. Um, but I think I try to also. Uh, construct a positive account. You know, it's not just here are the problems, but also here, I, I don't really look at the systemic, you know, here's what media creators could do. or Here's what organizations or the government might do. Those are valid and important uh, issues, but obviously most of us aren't in those chairs. So I try to think about what we can do as consumers of the news to um, consume it responsibly in ways that actually help us rather than ways that just keep us agitated.
0: Uh, you think maybe if we take a, a slight detour here, um, you're one of the few people I've ever talked to who's actually read Borston. <laughs> you know, he's one of those in the history world, of course, nobody reads Borston anymore because he's one of those, you know, post-World War II historians who was far too, uh, you know, consensus oriented and, and, and so on. Um, you know his his books perpetually end up on the you know the free shelf at library book sales, you know and, and so on. So I was I was thinking as maybe a slight aside before we get further into the book. Uh, maybe it would be worth you commenting for a few minutes on what Borston means by that concept of pseudo events. Uh, what, what was Borston up to with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, so many of the media critics of that era, I think remain worth reading, and they have uh, good observations. So it's what he describes as pseudo events have become, I think, much more prevalent today. For instance, so his basic definition is an event that is an event to be consumed um, on the news that uh, it's not a real thing. It's a it's a press release. It's a a ribbon cutting ceremony. But even kind of to, p- to push it further to kind of a simulacra, right? It doesn't actually have any substance behind it. It's purely manufactured. And clearly, so much of our um, uh, media operates on these events now. Uh, you know, you, if you read some of the stories that give me uh, heartburn about uh, these influencer houses where TikTok stars gather and they drum up things that they can film and. Uh, create content about for their followers. That's certainly an example. Um, But I think Worcene's point, and and this comes up in Postman too, it's when our social media feeds or the TV or the newspaper um, is kind of mixing in pseudo events with real events, it becomes really hard to discern what's actually happening and what's just uh, the kind of fluff on top, right? What's just being manufactured. So it's not just that pseudo events are a distraction, but also that they inevitably trivialize real events. So that even things that are happening, even a war in Ukraine and Russia, for instance, um, appears to us, gets filtered through uh, a, a media ecology that uh, keeps our eyeballs based on producing um, you know, eye candy and uh, stuff that's, that's designed to, to draw attention rather than to be substantive so i think that's what abortion is also helpful with is seeing the kind of broader effects on the ecosystem when these kinds of pseudo events get introduced
0: i remember uh oh probably last time i reread Borsten and just being amazed that like he wrote that before the kardashians you know or or the 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 prophetic uh uh quality to that book just never ceases to amaze me because when is that is it sixty somewhere in there yeah i think 63 maybe i don't quote me on the date. yeah that sounds but yeah, about I'm right so it,
1: it just it doesn't strike me that that was such a reality back then but apparently it wasn't sufficiently so that he picked up on it but
0: it's really become overwhelming today yeah it certainly certainly seems that way to me of course it's always you know tempting to uh you know, once you get a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But, but on the other hand, uh, yeah, I yeah, Borston and I don't know. I'm I'm hoping there'll be something of a, uh, a Borston revival. <laughs> he's he's somebody who uh, who needs uh, talking to and with and about. Uh, I think so. Back to the uh, uh, back to your book, then. Um, you you make quite a bit of hay out of. Uh, henry david thoreau's mcadam metaphor and i thought that might be a good place to kind of get into the meat of your of your argument there i didn't actually know the origin of the word tarmac before i read your book so that was kind of interesting
1: i mean my editor didn't want me to use that as the title he's like this is too obscure jeff and i thought but that's just the point right it's so striking and and weird and uh it kind of Helps us see things differently. I think. I mean, what what I appreciate about Thoreau is he's got such a keen eye for uh, metaphor and for verbal detail. And so I'm drawing here mostly from uh, his essay "Life Without Principle," which is a kind of follow-up to to Walden that he delivers as a lecture and then gets published in, in the Atlantic after he dies. Uh, but he's doing several things there, uh, primarily about encouraging his audience to live more. Deliberately and intentionally, as you'd expect. But he says one of the biggest impediments to that, one of the biggest uh, obstacles to living well is all of the ephemera that we are inundated with. And he says that when his big beef <laughs> in the lecture is uh, people going to the courtrooms and, and hanging on the trials, the murder trials, whatever. So I guess, you know, like the 19th century equivalent of the serial podcast or something. Uh, and he says, when you do that, uh, you actually macadamize your mind. So he's getting this road, uh, this metaphor from a road technology developed by a Scottish road engineer who, decide, who discovers or develops this idea that uh, you can build roads that better withstand the freeze-thaw cycle if all of the material in the road is small. And so the engineers would actually have calipers out there. To make sure that the workers are not letting any gravel through above. I can't remember exactly what the size is, an inch or three quarter or something. Um, so instead of building roads with large blocks at the bottom and then tapering it, or, you know, a cobblestone approach, it's basically gravel. And then, yeah, as you said, they spray tar on that and you get tarmac. So uh, Thoreau says that when we attend to trivia, we're actually fragmenting our mind which is again, very prescient. You know, I think about somebody like uh, Nick Carr's shallow's other studies recently about neuroplasticity and how uh, habitual patterns of attention do in fact change the biochemistry of our brain, I guess, I don't know. Um, But, but they change how we think. And if we attend to trivia, we become uh, a different kind of intellect. And I really like the road metaphor because um, one of the things Thoreau does with that is to draw attention to its effect, which, among other things, is that we become less able to put up any resistance to slogans, advertising, memes, uh, you know, all this kind of mass language. Uh, it's harder for us to question and think critically about because our, our minds have been. Turned into a smooth roadway designed to just feed new information and spit it out. So it actually makes us much less able to to use a, a buzzword today, think critically um, when our habits of attention have mechanized our our brains.
0: That's a nice, a nice metaphor. I certainly um, uh, when I'm teaching classes, uh, I find it. I find it interesting how often I can tell that what students really want me to do is just tell them what they should think about something so we can kind of get on with it. You know, it's a, maybe a, you know, an example of what you're talking about there, but there's no, there's no roadblocks <laughs> to perhaps stretch the metaphor too far. We don't have any uh, other ideas that what I'm saying might bump up against or something like that. Uh,
1: um, That's right. And so it's really hard to have a lively engaged discussion, right? Because people are just passive recipients of uh, whatever information you're spitting out. Yeah, Which I seen... guess is good, but it sure makes class boring.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not smart enough to be in that position. You know, right. I shouldn't be right. handed that much responsibility, you know? Yeah, exactly. I could There's... be wrong. <laughs> so, Yeah. Uh, Another, another, uh, so there's, there's a uh, Thoreau's, uh, McAdam, uh, metaphor, another, another one of the, the kind of theoretical, um uh constructs you're working on in the book there is that distinction uh between uh, kairos and chronos and i was wondering if you could uh, uh hold forth on that for a bit too by way of you know backdrop and before we get to the end of the book you know okay so what do we do now right kind of go through some of the earlier stuff so what's the what function is that distinction playing here
1: yeah so the, in the book i kind of look at three sections first one's attention Uh, where I talk about throw among others, the second one's time. Uh, And that's where I introduce this classic distinction between Kairos and Kronos, uh, which can get cashed out in different ways. Um, But the way I like to think about it is that Kronos is time as duration, uh, historical timeline, one thing after another. And Kairos is uh, the time, the, the right time to do something or cyclical and pattern time. You can think about it as dramatic time, right? What what action is appropriate now? So uh, over here, we had our first big hard freeze this week. So it was time for me to uh, clean up my garden this morning. And I did that. Uh, You know, it's not like that's on the calendar sometime, usually October, November, but some years it's later, some years it's earlier, depends on what's happening. And um, so the, the relevance to the news there, obviously, is that the uh, unifying feature of everything on the front page of a newspaper, that ancient technology or the TV or your social media feed. Uh, what, what draws it together is really that it's happening now. You know, there's not a, um, unless you put in filters, right? So I guess social media can be different, but in general, there's not a thematic or topical constraint. Um, there's not even a geographical constraint necessarily, depending on where you're looking uh, what, what, ha- what all these things have in common, all these disparate bits of information is that they've happened now or recently in, in chronological time. And that really overemphasizes or, or leads us in our imaginary to kind of collapse uh, time's various facets into that chronological dimension only. And one of the things I, I do in that section is look a little bit of the history of time and I think it's fascinating that for most of human history, um, they didn't. We didn't even have a single uh, timeline, right? We get some monks in the late Roman period trying to date Easter, who come up with uh, a kind of standard time scale. That then, thanks to Bede and others, gets uh, projected back into history as well. But for most most of history, you're dating things off local events. In the, the X, you know, the sixth year of so and so's reign or three years after the big earthquake, or, you know, two years after the Olympics when so-and-so won. So we just don't have this sense that history is progressing somewhere, that uh, time is unfolding. And I think the news media and our kind of obsession with the news is in part uh, a derivative of a kind of Hegelian notion that uh, civilization is unfolding and progressing. And if we're on the Right side of history, you know, that must be good. And, and we're rooted against those things which are on the wrong side of history. And it's this weird kind of um, moral dimension that gets laid over Kronos, which I think if you peel back the assumptions there, uh, there's not really a good reason to think that humans are getting morally better or that there is a right and a wrong side of history.
0: I've had a uh, I've had a couple of students uh, tell me in recent years that uh, what they really remember from college was me declaiming in class that I didn't believe in progress, and <laughs> so that, that so what and that on that subject uh, you bring up at one point in the book uh, the problem of presentism or wiggishness and so on and here again this seems like a uh, you know, a really, really useful concept in our day and age. So could you maybe kind of follow up on what you were talking about there a second ago by explaining in further detail what it would mean by presentism or wiggishness? Well, yeah,
1: now, now I'm self-conscious talking to a real historian, but <laughs> oh, yeah. you can, you can <laughs> set me straight.
0: It's Butterfield uh, in the 30s. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, um, you know, I think in the, in the historical world, right, there's this notion that it's usually goes by this label, the Whiggish view of history, that is some kind of variant of Hegelian um, progressivism where, so it gets defined differently. I mean, one of the things I think is interesting is you can have radically different views of progress, right? You can have a Marxist view that history is unfolding and uh, it's going to lead to communism of some sort. The Whiggish view is is more the uh, Western liberal democracies mark the end of history. And, uh, you know, as as democracy spreads around the world, we see the uh, the inevitable flourishing of uh, human civilization. It's the Fukuyama thesis. Exactly. Right. End of history. Exactly. And he's still uh, sure. You know, he's I see he keeps publishing stuff that this is true. So um, I think that's probably the most prevalent one. Right. Uh, President Obama liked to talk about history in those kinds of terms. And, and I think it leads us to really, you know, view the news as a kind of scoreboard update on how our values are spreading or where they're embattled, which is kind of weird.
0: You think that accounts for um, well, some of the shrillness maybe that somehow then if, um, uh, if you don't look good, in whatever the current news story is, then that means uh, you're kind of uh, you're holding us all back, or something like that. You're a uh, an unexpected speed bump on the road to progress. I don't. know. Do You think that could account yeah. for some of the the yeah shrillness? I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think
1: what it does is it makes the news uh much more existentially important to my sense of. Uh, how how I'm doing? How the world is doing? Um, so rather than just saying, "Wow, this is a thing that happened, it's a tragedy," or it happened and I don't really know what it means, you know, I don't I don't necessarily know that, that whether this candidate winning or losing is a good or bad thing. So instead of just kind of taking the information and neutrally, it gets uh, yeah projected on the scoreboard, and we get really like like we do with an athletic event, right? We get really upset if. Uh, we think we're losing and really excited if we think we're winning. So it kind of lends this drama to the news, which I think is unhealthy. And obviously, you know, because there's different visions of what we're progressing or so some people think some event is uh, a cause for celebration. Others think it's a cause for tragedy. Um, it, it makes things, yeah, it's like being caught in a, in an athletic event with fans on opposite sides of the team screaming at each other, which is, yeah, maybe not the most effective way of trying to understand what's happening in our world.
0: Yeah, it hasn't been in my experience, but then, uh, <laughs> boy, what do I know, right? <laughs> no, I've certainly, uh, uh, I don't know, in recent years, I've really kind of uh, started to see uh, puncturing the presentist bubble as one of my central roles as a as a college professor. I think that's it's so hardwired, and it's so easy to to slip into that. Uh, I don't know. I really feel like it's it's like a, the public service side of my job.
1: But I'm just, and I don't, you know, I don't delve into this too deeply in the book. But I'm just fascinated at how that has become so ingrained. Because again, for much of human history, people did not view the present as the pinnacle or the, the center of history, right? Yeah. Um, so it, it's so fascinating to me how that has become so widespread. I mean, you're absolutely right that that's, uh, kind of the default position amongst college students today.
0: Yeah, it certainly, certainly seems to be. So if any college students are listening to this, uh, uh be warned, we're coming for you. <laughs> so, so, uh, all right. Uh, so maybe, um. Oh, I had one more, one more question for you on the uh, the, the Kairos-Kronos uh, distinction here. Uh, something that I've, I don't know a lot about this, but uh, something that I found kind of interesting when I was thinking about your discussion of, of Kairos is like, if you look at the uh, contemporary Catholic world, there's, you know, been a lot of, uh, fallout from the the whole Latin mass business and so on. And, uh, um, and what occurred to me in light of that, uh, discussion in the book was what you regularly read in commentaries on that, you know, restriction of the Latin mass is that, um, Latin masses tend to have large, large numbers of very young people with families in them. you know, pretty much everybody who writes about this that decision from a critical point of view mentions that, right. But you can probably see where I'm headed with this, right. The, uh, Uh, it occurred to me that you say, okay, so why is that, right? Why would, why would younger people, you know, be pretty attracted to something as arcane seeming perhaps as a Latin mass. And maybe it's that connection with things in the past. Maybe it's because it drags us out of our presentism in a, uh, um, you know, in in, in some kind of meaningful way. I don't know. Maybe on the one hand, maybe presentism is hardwired, but on the other hand, uh you know by the culture around us but maybe on the other hand uh we don't actually want that i don't know does that that strike you as a interesting uh, uh point or i was trying yeah. to think of examples you know no
1: i think i think that's really helpful and i think you're right that uh oftentimes the presentist paradigm uh becomes unsatisfying to people right and so they look for uh alternatives ways out. And, and I think the Latin mass is a good example. Uh, and that's, you, you see this, you know, it's not just in Catholic circles where right? a lot of different religions or different, uh, Protestant, I mean, different uh, Christian traditions have a kind of recovery of liturgical time, which I think I, I contrast in the book as, as liturgical time being a kind of expression of, um, Kairos time, a patterned time that, uh, roots us in this, drama that's not tied to the news cycle, but is more eternal. Um, so I find those to be uh, helpful responses. You also see maybe less helpful or less, yeah. You sometimes, know, um, sometimes you get the kind of reactionary, right? Just where it, something that happened in the 1950s must be better because it was prior to, prior to this mess that we're in right now, right? So there's, there's a way of just flipping presentism and becoming kind of naively nostalgic about the past. Um, So I wanna acknowledge that. But I think the Latin mass thing is is more of an example, like you're saying, of people trying to participate in something that feels eternally grounded, some kind of a drama, uh, a pattern, a a rhythm that uh, offers access outside of chronological time.
0: Even if even if we are even if we say we're convinced that the present um, is the best thing ever, it's hard to it's hard to take that seriously when we have the Kardashians and you know you know I mean it's it's, our our evidence seems thin. (laughs) Yes, and so you can become dissatisfied with uh, the drivel of the present, right? Absolutely. Yeah, seems it seems so to me, anyhow. So uh, you've, uh, you've suggested, I'm kind of kind of thinking here now towards the, the, okay, so what do we do now uh, part of the book. And you suggested that one of the things we can do is cultivate an attitude of sanctifying indifference uh, towards the news. Could you uh, uh, expand probably not just on what you mean by that, but also on what you don't mean by that?
1: Yeah, that's one where I had to be careful to qualify what I mean and head off um, misinterpretations. And I tried to be careful in the book. Uh, hopefully that makes sense. But I know uh, since, since publication, some people have still questioned me. So I, I guess my real, um, the, the real thrust of that section is to try to question or puncture a hole in the uh, sense that we have a moral duty to be informed um that that somehow it's an unqualified good to know uh, stuff that's happening and that as long as i know stuff well that i'm not being um culpably ignorant i'm not just burying my head in the sand uh i'm not you know opting out of civilized life or something um so you know one character who i point to as a, an example to kind of question some of these assumptions is Charles Dickens' Mrs. Jellyby from Bleak House, who's awesome. And she is obsessed with the plight of uh, orphans in Africa while her own children are running around totally neglected uh, under her feet. So I think she's a good example. Dickens is making fun of this already in the 19th century where we can be obsessed about what's going on out there and neglect uh, our duties close to hand where we can actually be more responsible Um, So I I draw more extensively on Blaise Pascal, the uh, French mathematician and theologian, who I think develops a pretty sophisticated uh, understanding of providence and how if we actually trust that God is in control or even on a secular account that we we don't have agency always to affect these things, then we uh, are freed from obsessing improperly over distant events. And, and he says, that doesn't mean we we don't care at all. We can still advocate for the policies that we think are right. We can still be involved, uh, and, and active, but there's a kind of existential burden that gets lifted. Uh, there's a kind of, yeah, sanctified, sanctified indifference that happens when we recognize that our need to be informed should be proportionate to our, um, ability to respond. And it's not just um, information without any kind of action that, that we can carry out.
0: So the uh, being informed then moves from being a good in and of itself to a, it's only a good in so far as it aims at a particular T loss then. That seems it. Uh, so, um, so that's uh, that's then the sense in which we can say um, it's morally okay to be indifferent. <laughs> right.
1: Right. Because, you know, I don't need to have a, a refined opinion on everything that's happening with the Kardashians or that's a, it's an easy one. Right. But I think it's even OK in some sense not to have, you know, I'm speaking about myself as a not maybe it's different for you, but as a non-Russia uh, expert, I don't have to have a really refined opinion on the Russian war because I have very little agency about uh, what we can do in response. So maybe there are some things I can do, some things I should know about. But I don't have to like work out in detail here's what I think the US policies toward Russia and Ukraine should be because that's not my, my responsibility anyway
0: I uh, you've, you've helped me crystallize here why my least favorite bumper sticker of all time is that one that says if you're not outraged you're not paying attention exactly <laughs> so it's that, that puts outrage in the driver's seat rather than as a kind of uh, you know occasionally acceptable byproduct right. <laughs> so, man, I hate that bumper sticker because
1: because clearly your outrage does not serve any good. You know, it's it's maybe it actually makes you less able to, yeah, love your your children, uh, attend to the responsibilities that you uh, can normally discharge. So, but we have this sense that I have to change my profile picture or whatever on Facebook to show that I'm in solidarity with whatever the outrage uh, issue is today. And I think that's it, gets, it. Keeps us really emotionally worked up, which is good for advertisers, good for the news news media ecosystem, but I don't see how it's good for us or for the world.
0: So, uh, since you bring up Facebook, uh, huh? so you have this uh, this kind of striking uh, scene in the book uh, from uh, Dante's Inferno, right? With the uh, the two characters, um, are they from Florence, yep. Yeah, who, uh, uh, in in well, maybe you should uh, uh, hold forth for a second on the significance of that scene for your book, and then I'll get around to asking the question that uh, that was on my mind in light of it.
1: Sure, sure. So Dante is with uh, Virgil in Hell. They're in the sphere of the heretics, and uh, these two dudes pop out of a out of a coffin. Uh, where they are. And one is asking about uh, an update on Florentine politics, which if you know anything about it, about it uh, during Dante's time, is incredibly confusing, you know, because his, like, sub-party had, had been in the ascendance when he died, so he wanted to make sure they were still uh, in power. And Dante's like, well, no, they lost. But then the facts that I was a part of that had beat your side, we also lost. So... Um, you know Dante's trying to get him up to speed in all these details when the other guy who is his um, son-in-law pops out and asks him about uh, his his son who is a, a fellow poet of Dante's and he's obsessed you know is my son uh, an acclaimed poet is he doing good is he he misunderstands something Dante says and he fears he's uh, he's dead but both of them are so obsessed about things that seem pretty trivial to us. You know, um, it's like, how how is my son doing in the Little League? And, uh, you know, which faction of a faction of a party is in the ascendancy right now? While they are at this moment roasting in hell, right? Uh, But they have no sense of their eternal uh, destiny. They have no sense of perspective because they are so obsessed on... Uh, what's happening right now, and uh, if they're winning or losing. And I think it's, you know, Dante's whole uh, understanding of time and hell is interesting and appropriate here too, because he says that they don't have access to the present. So the pilgrim, Dante, is a little bit confused at this point in the journey because they can understand the past, but they don't know what's happening at this moment. And Virgil explains that um, in hell, they're cut off from the present, which is the only thing they should care about. And uh, once, you know, once the end of the world happens, time is no more. They'll be cut off entirely because the present will be all in all. There will be no no time outside the present. So um, their, their eternal destiny is to lose access to that one bit of the time. That's all they care about.
0: So uh, the, the connection I had in mind here then with Facebook is that if social media Turns us into the kind of present-obsessed people that are getting punished. In in Dante, is there any, you um, know, uh, is there any role for such uh, non-neutral tools in our lives now, or is basically where we have to start? Is do we just have to get rid of those things outright? You know, that seems to be one of the. The sixty-four-dollar questions of yeah. the day is the extent to which we view our tools as such or, or as, as non-neutral forces. So, what do you? What would be your response to a question like well, that?
1: It's so complicated. I think, Aaron. I mean, I guess a couple of things. I don't think there's a blanket rule, uh, one way or the other. So, I don't want to, uh, you know, make a blanket statement. But you're absolutely right that these tools are not neutral. And we have to call that out, right? We have to recognize that they are forming us and that they push us to use them in certain ways. And then insofar as we do that, they push us to uh, reorder our lives out, you know, when we're not using them, right? Someone, someone who uh, uses certain tools and becomes acclimated to them that then affects your whole life. So we're all implicated. I, I still hold out hope that, uh, that some of us that that, that there remains possibilities, I guess, for using some of these tools in ways that they weren't intended, you know, kind of MacGyver type, uh, (laughs) type approach. I had not thought of that. Um, But it's admittedly a risky endeavor, right? So uh, I think there are definitely certain tools. I mean, I think this is where I think it's takes discernment on the part of an individual and family and communities. You know, there are certain tools that we should just forego period and there are others that we should be uh, using only insofar as we think we can use them against their entailments.
0: Yeah, it's, it's uh, something I've you know thought about quite a bit. Of course, I noticed in your in your book you said, for instance, that you don't own a smartphone, right? So there would be one decision you've made. Perfect. You know, well, not necessarily, I, I gather, saying, well, everybody should get rid of right. their smartphone,
1: right? But we should draw lines, you know, there should be some things we say no to, yeah.
0: yeah. Just, uh, you know, uh, um, to, to go on the record, uh, I, I, too, do not own a smartphone. So, they, I've, I've, I've gone in much the similar direction, although I, was, I never had one to begin with to get rid of, so I yeah. suppose... Uh, uh, I didn't have to go through that that process where the first step to recovery is identifying that you have a problem, you know, but, or you know
1: I, maybe this doesn't match your experience, but I've been encouraged in just the last couple of years. So it wasn't like this eight years ago, but now uh, more and more of my students are actively looking for ways to take it rid of their smartphones. Like it's, it's cool again, to have a dumb phone, um, so I, I guess that's an encouraging sign to me that students are recognizing, oh, this is not inevitable. I'm not locked into the system. I can I have some agency here. Maybe maybe the deck is is rigged against me, but I still have some opportunity to say no and make some decisions for myself.
0: So uh, so let's imagine that um, I've done the thorough thing. I've stepped back and looked at my life and said, how do I live it more intentionally? and uh what would be what would be your um kind of assessment of what positive role uh news uh if i'm consuming news like what kind of news am i consuming what what venues am i reading that you think would be a you know the put me in a positive direction if I've been apt up until now to live my life from one, uh, you know, dopamine-fueled outrage hit to the next. Uh, um, get Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. So, again, I think it looks different for different people, right? We have different callings and responsibilities. Um, but a couple things. One is maybe there are particular topics that uh, you are called to follow um, because of your – responsibilities, your interests, your, uh, opportunities. So, you know, maybe, uh, you don't have to follow everything that's happening right now, but maybe there are some kind of longitudinal stories, developments, shifts that, uh, are worth your time to think about and try to, to, um, stay current on. So try to identify those and then, and then supplement, you know, reading about what's happening now with. Reading books and the history, and um, you know, it's, it's not about like what happened yesterday, but what's happening in these weeks and months, right? So maybe on a slower wavelength, with more historical perspective. And then the other thing I talk about, especially in the last section on community, is um, you know, try to apprentice yourself to people who um, are, are following what's happening in a way that you admire rather than a way that's, as you put it, just uh, looking for dopamine hits. So what are the communities, the institutions, the publications, maybe the Substack uh, newsletters that even if you don't always agree with them, you admire their posture, their their search for truth, their uh, intellectual virtues, etc., cetera, because the, the kind of news we read Shapes the kind of people we become, right? We're, we're journeying together. Um, I, 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 I can kind of conclude with this riff on the etymology of journal, as uh, the information we need to know to to journey well today. So, who, who are we journeying with? Uh, because those friends will shape our affections, uh, our assumptions, etc. So, um, yeah, read slower and be more careful with, about who we read with.
0: I thought it was, uh, as I was uh, partway through the book, I thought, uh, I wonder when he's going to bring up Lewis's essay on reading old books. And then I, sure enough, there it was, right? I think you cited Alan Jacobs on that subject too, didn't you?
1: Yep. Yeah. Jacobs,
0: which is, aside though, I think it's fascinating
1: that Jacobs comes to much the same position that Lewis has, but he never cites Lewis, even though he's written a biography of Lewis. I guess he's just so uh, uh, digested Lewis so thoroughly that he, he comes to the same conclusion. I don't know. It's kind of, that's kind of weird, but, but yeah, Alan Jacobs book, breaking bread with the dead is a really nice um, example, I guess, of how we can deal with uh, learning from past voices. And Jacobs was very good on this, even if they're wrong in some ways, right? I mean, people in the past were wrong about stuff, just like people today are wrong about stuff. So it's not the to past some pristine, uh, pure time, But as Lewis points out, they were wrong in different ways. And that's what's so instructive, right? They, uh, they see through our blind spots and we are more likely to see through their blind spots.
0: That certainly seems the case to me. I've, I've told my students for years that if you don't learn any humility from history, you haven't learned much. Uh, And that, uh, that seems to be very much of a piece with what Jacobs and Lewis were both after. I uh, maybe wrap them up here, Jeff. I wanted to, to throw a suggestion your way and see what you thought of it. I was, I was, um, uh, in the kind of, okay, so what are some ways forward, you know, section there at the, at the end of your book, you talked a bit, uh, in there about comedy at a couple of different points. And I, uh, I, whenever I see people talking about that, I, I invariably think of the ending to the movie, the big Lebowski, uh, where uh, Sam uh, or, uh, Sam Elliott's character says, uh, "Well, I guess that's just the way the whole darned human comedy keeps on perpetuating itself." I think is how the uh, uh, how the line goes. And uh, I don't know. I was I was wondering then if maybe uh, maybe in addition to the various suggestions you've offered in the book, uh, cultivating a kind of comic sense of the present might be another. Another way forward, which I, I guess is kind of a long way around of taking ourselves less seriously. Uh, I don't know. Do you think that we could take that too far, right? A bit like your sanctified indifference point. We could go too far with that. But uh, I don't know. Do you think uh, cultivating a sense of the comic absurdity of the, uh, or maybe comic absurdities of the present, might be a healthy antidote to the kind of uh, outrage problem?
1: Yeah, I think so. And that's a good point because, you know, comedy, on the one hand, uh, you know, when I draw on it, I'm drawing on Dante's kind of classical definition of comedy as to to, to paraphrase Dante, right? A story that begins in tragedy, smelliness, right? It's like the the goat uh, village and ends in happy, happiness Someone gets married. There's a a good ending, right? So if we think that, that ultimately there's a good ending, Um, which Dante certainly did as a Christian, then it, again, mutes, relativizes, takes the pressure off of um, the kind of existential drama of right now. And it enables us to uh, deal with what's happening now without a sense of like, oh my word, the world is going to end. And if I don't click this or read this story or watch this, I may miss it. (sighs) So I think it relativizes things. And then I think also what you said, I really like that point about taking ourselves less seriously. Uh, The great thing about comedy is it um, gives us the perspective we need to recognize our own foibles and shortcomings. And that is in a really short supply in a a kind of hyper serious, hyper uh, crisis mode uh, that, that seems to prevail on the news in part because that's what keeps people watching and clicking.
0: Well, I think we've, uh, gotten, uh, kind of through the, or an overview at least of the meat of your book here, Jeff, is there anything I haven't asked you about that you'd want to, you'd want listeners to know about the, the book you've written?
1: No, I think this was a good conversation. I mean, may, maybe the last thing I'll just add is, um, I think that, the community section I end with is uh, the kind of heart of the matter for so many of us, because we think about the news as a often individual thing that we we consume uh, on our own devices uh, by ourselves. But uh, it shapes our sense of imagined community. And so, you know, as a good localist. Uh, one of the things I really would would commend is for people to get out of their uh Online or kind of yeah, institutional bubbles, and meet their neighbors. You know, one of the things I say is go for a walk in your neighborhood and and be reminded of what's happening in the natural world, what's happening in the human world, uh, out, out outside behind your screens, and allow that to kind of put put things in perspective.
0: Maybe that'll uh, help us have a clearer sense of the ultimate goals towards which our news consumption should be oriented, as you were saying earlier. Well, well, thanks for uh, taking the time to talk to me about your book, Jeff.
1: Well, thank you, Aaron. I really enjoyed it.
0: You bet. Okay, bye now.